Hi, I'm Louisa Burwood-Taylor, and this is AgFunder, a podcast about the entrepreneurs revolutionizing the food and agriculture industry and the investors behind them. Today, I'm really excited to welcome three different guests onto the podcast to talk about the role of women in the food and agriculture industry and how changing consumer preferences are informing innovation throughout the supply chain. The idea for today's podcast came from Sajeev Krishnan, who is a founding partner of S2G Ventures, as we were discussing potential topic ideas. And he said he was amazed how few women were working in senior food industry roles, considering they make the majority of food purchases in the household. So thank you to Sanjeev for suggesting today's other guests who are Beth Robertson-Martin, sourcing lead for organic, natural and non-GMO ingredients at General Mills, and Kelly James, the founder of Macaris, the organic commodities trading platform, which, full disclosure, S2G Ventures is invested in. So hi, everyone, and thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Glad to be here. <laughs> so Sanjeev... Who makes the decisions in your household on the grocery shopping? And you know, what's your take on the gender gap that you see in food and ag? Well, I think there's a couple different um, things. We think the consumer is voting with their pocketbook around sustainability, health, and, and decentralization. And, and, and I think you know, we'd like, we have some shorthands within our firm. And one thing is we think the consumer is head of acreage in certain parts of agriculture. I also think that there is a gender gap in the sense that in my household, um, my wife does make the majority of food decisions, not 100%, but at least you know 50% or if not 70%, depending on the week. And I and I feel like a lot of both on the branded side, on the supply chain side, it's still very much a male-dominated, and and especially at the governance level, at the board and senior management level. Um, and so I, I just find it, I just found it, I just find it intriguing that this gender gap exists, um, given, you know, in other sectors where, um, you know, there is a little bit more of a balance. And I have to say that overall, the secular, you know, overall economy, there's obviously a tilt towards a male dominated sort of governance. Uh, boardrooms are still male dominated and, and, and senior management is still male dominated. But I think the balance in the food and ag sector is, is just my, opinion, particularly on the startup side, it's, it's very male-dominated. And do you see that changing at all? I, I do. I think there, you know, there's, there's folks like Kelly and Beth that are, you know, Beth at a, a large company level and Kelly as an entrepreneur level. Um, I, I do see more women coming into starting companies, which is where I have probably a better perch. Um, and they're starting companies. A lot of them are starting companies because, um, it's a problem they want to solve for their own household. So you're, you're still people starting coming, you know, in the food sector because they didn't have an alternative for, you know, allergy or they wanted, um, you know, healthy eating for their own family. So they're trying to solve problems with food and our food in particular that relate to their own experience. Um, I think, you know, Kelly can talk about revolution foods. It, you know, who uh, one of the co-founders is on Kelly's board. And I think they started a company because they were moms and they wanted to solve a problem around school lunches and how to make that healthier. Uh, and it probably starts with their own kids, but it, it, they found the, you know, a business opportunity. So I, I do see a change. I will not be as good a spokesperson as uh, Kirsten Toby, who is the co-founder 
of revolution foods, but I think what Sanjeev says is exactly right that um, they were they started out with uh, both of their founders, as I understand it, met in business school and kind of their own professional background and as well as uh, personal experiences led them to found this great you know company. It's it's grown by leaps and bounds. I, I think they. Um, they have they have really executed you know pretty pretty well on on a on a very good idea, and then I would say you know this is the talk of the startup world right now is the you know diversity and uh, the there is it's it's the numbers are very small but you know there's just not that many women who choose to take the the VC route or can raise capital um, who start up companies that are in the in the the model where they scale very rapidly. Um, but that's not to say it kind of reminds me of farming. You know, tons of women farmers out there. Um, they're not necessarily they're 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 a smaller percentage of the very large, very you know corporate type farms. But but the women farmers have always you know women farmers have always been an important part of the farm economy. It's the same thing when people start you know businesses. Women have always been entrepreneurs. Um, they just are usually not recognized for it, or they they you know they may not make the headlines, but they're out there doing it. Um, in very large numbers, um, but the types of businesses they have, you know, we face the, all of the usual barriers, access to capital and networks and, um, and, and just general support. So. And do you think there are any particular challenges that female entrepreneurs face that male entrepreneurs don't? And, and is there anything that can be done to change that? You know, it's such a good question. In some ways, you know, I, I founded a company called Mercaris that provides market data and an online trading platform for commodities and crops that are organic or non-GMO or otherwise, you know, certified. We call them identity preserved. And in one way, you know, sometimes entrepreneurs are the worst people to ask about uh, overall, you know, policy question. We're so focused on building our own businesses, it's sometimes hard to step back and say, what as the sector do we need? Um, but I will say that um, having uh, having uh, working in a space where the, the customer themselves are very mission-oriented, as well as the uh, investment capital. So on the phone, you know, on this podcast, we have two good examples of that. Sanjeev is a representative of a very um, mission-driven uh, investor that has, you know, has certainly has financial goals, but also has uh, environmental and social um, standards that they're trying to to live up to. Um, and Beth, as a representative of how uh, a, a major, you know, Fortune 500 company executes on some of those same uh, goals, and I think having both sides of the equation, you know, the 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 business side uh, or the customer-driven side, the investment side. Uh, entrepreneurs that that are trying to fill specific needs and niches uh, is, I think, that's part of the part of the, the answer. Yes, yeah, some really interesting points there. And Beth, from where you're sitting at General Mills, you know, what's your take on this disconnect between female consumers and the industry that's serving them? Well, you know, we do certainly still see that um, at our, you know, certainly at the senior leadership level even at General Mills, while we are a very progressive company, I think there are still, we are still, you know, significantly um, weighed toward the, toward males in our leadership teams, um, although that is changing. Um, and General Mills is, you know, incredibly aware of that and incredibly aware of the benefits that come from supporting, um, you know, these uh, women and minority groups. And so I think we've seen a change over the years, you know, the, 
percentage of women in leadership positions in our supply chain has continued to grow. And I think even in sourcing, we're up to about, we're a little over 50% of the representation across the sourcing organization. Um, and the head of our sourcing group, um, you know, is a woman. So I think we're seeing it certainly change. And the interesting thing is that as we see the number of women, you know, moving into leadership positions and that percentage growing over time, um, you know, we're actually seeing the opposite in food decisions, right? It was 90% of food decisions were made by women 20 years ago, and it's changed to 70 and 60%. It's still obviously the majority. Um, but I do think that at a big company like General Mills, you know, we, even if you are not the consumer you're serving, you know, we really have to understand and be empathetic to their needs um, in order to continue to be successful. And so how would you say, Beth, that their needs are changing and, and how much are consumer trends being driven by women, you know, demands uh, trends towards non-GMO, organic and plant-based proteins? Um, it's, you know, it's a good question. And the data we've got is actually a bit surprising, I think. Um, one of the things we see is, uh, you know, if you look at kind of how we define consumers and, and their preferences, um, if you look at consumers who really are passionate about, you know, organic, non-GMO, um, and, and really use their food as a political statement, um, it's still skewed a little bit heavier, female versus male, but not as significantly as you might think. I think, um, you know, if you look at kind of that all-in consumer around, I'm voting with my food dollars, it's a political statement, it's medicine, it's all of the things beyond even just nutrition, it's about equal. You know, males and females are equally represented in that group. Um, as you as you kind of expand that group and think more about people being, you know, practicality and people on, uh, seeking nutrition, um, you know, it's a little bit more skewed to the female uh, side. But I still think it's been an interesting um, view. Demographics are, are kind of a poor predictor of a person's um, preferences right now. So we've got a lot of um, male consumers who are just as concerned as women are around making those, um, making the right food choices. I agree. I think the changing consumer is probably um, not demographic driven. Certainly millennials play a large um, role from a generational perspective, but we think, you know, aging boomers and, you know, and other, and other demographics also are playing a role in terms of wanting more transparency and authenticity in the food they're buying. That seems to be a, a clear theme, um, whether in the conventional sector or in the natural sector. Um, I think why I find this conversation really interesting, I think Kelly and Beth are really at the frontiers of, yeah, the consumer is changing and, you know, you're seeing this in revenue growth rates of, of of people on the conventional side and, and on the natural side, um, you know, organics growing at, at double digits um, and has not stopped. Um, and but one of the things that I think that we think a lot about is affordability. And I think, um, and as we talked about earlier, that we think the consumer is head of acreage, but acreage has to catch up in order for the consumer to continue to, to purchase. Um, natural food, whether it's or whether, how you define it, organic, non-GMO, other ways to, there are other ways to define it. And so I think what, what I find interesting in this conversation is, um, you know, if organic corn stays at, you know, 
around $10, give or take, 9 to nine to $11, there's only going to be a segment of American society that can afford it. And I think what Beth is doing and what Kelly are doing and others in the supply chain are doing is really um, trying to figure out how do you get affordability through that um, supply chain so that millennials, we call it millennials, moms, and aging boomers can continue to, to have the op- more of them can have the opportunity to buy it, and you get a more mainstream um, mass market audience that is more to more focused on on affordability. And I think it starts for us at the supply chain level. Um, yeah, I mean, Kelly, I'd love to hear your thoughts on how to um, bring the price down for consumers, but also worth bearing in mind, you know, there is an incentive for farmers that convert from conventional farming practices to organic is the price uplift. So how, you know, how is that going to fit into things? Yeah. Well, so I'll say something a little controversial here, which is, you know, you go to a lot of these food and these ag conferences, and I tell people, I have members of my family that can afford to pay, you know, uh, $7 a dozen for, you know, sort of free-range, cage-free, you know, organic eggs. And I have members of my family that are on, you know, food assistance, that are on SNAP programs and really are looking for the, you know, the least expensive option available. And our, our food system has to accommodate both types, uh, the entire range of consumers. It's a, it's a really tall order. I think sometimes food and ag gets trapped in this conversation where we say, well, we've got to produce a lot of cheap food. Um, and I think sometimes it's, you know, ag has been tasked with, in a, it's been given an impossible task, right? Like, which is, let's make food so artificially cheap that if you're not able to get a living wage, for example, you can still eat. Maybe we should take a look at why so many people are not able to earn a living wage. Um, and, and I think there are some, some pressures that come when you, you know, when you have policies and, and, an, and an economic system that has denied so many people, you know, kind of the basic ability to meet their needs. Um, and so then you kind of twist yourself into a, a pretzel, a non-organic pretzel, to try and meet those needs when the, the whole system's kind of you know, tough to operate under. So I will just put that out there as a as something as, as food for thought. Um, you know, that said, where Mercaris comes in is not so much that we think you know we try and be very neutral. We we say, look, I don't know if nine dollars a bushel is the correct price for corn. It's what the market is is paying right now. It's what we are saying we are willing to pay for corn that is grown without pesticides, chemical pesticides, chemical fertilizers, you know, soil, soil health, uh, increased you know, water quality, that sort of thing. And where we come in is saying that's, that might be fine. We want to make sure that the, the transaction costs that come from an opaque, inefficient market are squeezed out of the system. That's not benefiting anybody or it's not benefiting many people. Um, so if you want to pay, you know, $9 a bushel for corn, that's benefiting the grower. That's great. But if you're paying um, a price that includes uh, very heavy logistics costs because the infrastructure is not deployed to, to adequately process that corn, if the price is skewed or distorted because the market is opaque and people don't have good information about supply and demand, that's a bad cost. If you're paying higher because there are not adequate risk management tools uh, for farmers in case of, let's say, you know, they get hailed out or uh, something else happens weather-related, that's a transaction cost. And all of those things can be reduced, uh, if not eliminated, if there is better market data and better um, 
better better market mechanisms in general. So that's kind of our contribution to making the sector sustainable. Right, fantastic. Yeah, and so I'm just wondering how the work you're doing at Macaris and then the increasing number of organic farmers, you know, what impact that's going to have on the price of organic food over the long term. You know, and Beth, from where you're sitting, where how far do you think the prices need to come down to be more affordable and realistic for a broader set of consumers? You know, I it's a good question. And I think Kelly made some really great points. Um, if you think about who's making these choices, um, it's not always the most affluent consumers who want to choose organic. Um, in fact, something like three quarters of millennial parents um, are choosing organic. And I think we can all agree that for the most part, millennials don't have any money. Um, also, when did I get so old that millennials have kids um, is my question. But um, beyond that, I think, um, you know, we also have to think about farmers. Um, you know, a lot of farmers will, will say they make decisions about what to grow based on what they would eat, but then they get to a point where they can't afford, you know, what they're growing if they weren't growing it. Um, so what the price should be, you know, it is really all about supply and demand, but I, I completely agree with Kelly that there's a supply chain piece that needs to be addressed and, and the efficiency is um, certainly an opportunity. If you think about organic ingredients, they, they, on average, they travel about 500 miles from field to their finished product and conventional is under 30. Um, and that's not including import. That's just looking domestically. Um, and so I think looking at the supply chain, looking at the processing and understanding, you know, where we can eliminate inefficiencies and bad costs, as Kelly said, um, is certainly an opportunity to pass on value and give consumers what they want to pay for and take out the things that they don't, they don't need to pay for. So in essentially optimizing the supply chain, Kelly and Macaris are helping to bring the price of sustainably and organically sourced foods down. I wonder, Sanjeev, have you come across any other technologies um, and startups that are working in the supply chain or, you know, another part of the food chain, you know, to help optimize some of the pricing around food, whether it's organic, sustainably sourced or other? Yes, uh, we, see, we consider kind of a, a, a toolkit of companies that we want to invest in. Those toolkit of companies are fundamentally about making the farmer more money um, by, by uh, using technology and scaling technology. They happen to be sustainable. Um, they happen to fit into where the consumer is going, which is where we're excited. So some examples are we're right now finalizing an investment in a, in a seed company, seed breeding technology company that focuses on non-GM traits. Um, as you know, non-GMO is an increasingly interesting area. Not, and farmers are interested not just because of, um, you know, non-GMO being more of an more of an opportunity with the consumer, but more, they're not sure they want to pay some of the premiums for GMO traits that they've had historically given where commodity prices are today and given some of the mutations that are occurring with, with the current GM, um, GMO uh, product availability. So we, you know, genetics is an interesting area. Crop protection is very interesting for us. We did, as you know, investment in Terramara, um, and and they focused on increasing the efficacy of biological crop protection 
And one of the things in their pipeline, the natural herbicide, which I think is very critical to scaling organic because a lot of farmers don't want to convert because of the weed issue. Um, and so if you can figure out a natural herbicide, I think that that's potentially a blockbuster product. And so we'd be very interested in, in that. Also using precision ag, um, whether it's data analytics to help with reduced, um, you know, just how do you grow with less inputs, whether they're chemical or others. Um, and I think we're also interested in sort of the middle layer infrastructure. So the, the processing logistics side of, of it, which is not necessarily what a classic venture capital firm would do, but we're interested in it because we think there's inefficiency in the supply chain there. Um, and so I think there's opportunities throughout the, um, the, the supply chain to, to tackle this, um, you know, to, to basically to make this more efficient. I think where we start off is how we don't, we, we're very skeptical the farmers will adopt um, unless they feel like it's going to improve their bottom line. Great, yeah. And Kelly, um, from where you are, you know, what are you seeing in the market? Yeah, I mean, I just, I'm, I'm a big fan of the, you know, many tools to address the problem. Every, every tool in the toolbox. So, the, the sort of technology-based, you know, you can look at. Well, Ag Funder is a, a really good source. I, I take a look and see, you know, all the things that people are putting money into, and you know, ranging from like, you know, the the, the seed technologies, very science-based technologies for increasing yields, the the big data, precision data, farm management type tools, um, market solutions like like Mercaris. Uh, there's all sorts of things. There's also, I will say, that it usually escapes the sort of venture capital type model, but there's a lot of good old-fashioned project finance going on as well. So uh, lending to, for example, build infrastructure to solve some of the challenges that, that Beth talked about. Uh, the things that fall into traditional project finance are out there as well. So between all of those things, we have um, it, it's not necessarily a coordinated effort. It kind of you know the the market is can be chaotic and and you know lots of things will will fail, um, but but the best ideas will will hopefully succeed, be adopted on a broader scale, and then um, and then become the the sort of businesses the new business as usual scenario. Yeah, and, and the other ways that technology is um, interfacing with consumer demands, and that's on the traceability side. I think this is an area of ag tech that's still. Um, relatively small in terms of the number of startups that are that are looking at this, um, but you know I am seeing you know more and more of this post farm gate type technology, and I'm interested, Beth. You know, are you noticing that consumers um, you know do want to know more about their food? How would a company like General Mills give them that information, and you know how important is it? To to give it to them now, today, or is this something that's going to be more important in five years' time? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I think we really believe in radical transparency at, um, at General Mills, and I think has done a number of things to address that. I mean, you know, we recently announced that we are going to be labeling for the presence of genetically engineered material in our project in our products, um, and certainly for the consumer interested in natural and organic um, products transparency is table stakes for them. They want to know who grew their food, where they where they grew it, how it was grown. Um, and it's about, you know, rural communities. It's about soil health, it's about fair trade, um, you know, worker safety. So there's no shortage of 
demand for transparency through the supply chain. And it's not always easy to trace every ingredient all the way back to the specific field that it was um, grown on. So I think there's definitely a need for technology to make it easier for us to do that and as quickly as possible. Um, you know, we've got a number of projects and a number of teams working on things internally, and a lot of it is through third parties and audit processing or audit processes. Um, so I think, you know, for us, it's critical to the future of, you know, General Mills and really any CPG who's committed to, you know, consumer first actions. Sanjeev, I know that you've been looking a bit at traceability technologies you know, there's a variety of different ways that, um, you know, food product can be tracked from the farm to the consumer. Are there any that you think are particularly valuable or any that you think are not necessarily going to work? I know that some of you involve creating small little devices that will be put in the box of oranges or whatever the product is um, and, and travel, hopefully, with that product to, um, to the store shelf. I think... Um, at least from my, my, from my perspective, we were very interested in, in uh, transparency and, and traceability, and we made an investment, as you know, um, focused around um, testing and food diagnostics around um, meat, and we're looking at the same in produce. And so the idea is to empower both the supply chain and the consumer with information. Um, I think we're moving, you know, one of the things that, that I see the food system moving from is, I know, perhaps the overall consumer economy from advertising to information. And so in that world, and I think people, you know, one of the interesting debates we have internally is sort of the efficacy of advertising, um, particularly with millennials and perhaps other populations. Um, and so I think there's, there's a lot of entrepreneurs trying to, what I would call the food diagnostic space. And I think, as that, as the smartphone becomes more smart and you want to see where it came from, I think the supply chain will, is already interested and aware that that's coming down the pipeline for consumers and want to get ahead of that and basically make sure their supply chains can handle that level of transparency. So I think the consumer is going to get armed with information far more than they are today. And I think that will, I think, is, is, uh, is going to have pretty profound impacts on the supply chain, uh, whether it's in produce, meat, or in packaged goods. You know, most of my experience is food in the in the U.S., um, but I have heard that in uh, other countries, like let's say, let's take Japan as an example, the consumer is already, you know, you can scan a barcode, for example, and get a lot more information about the various components or ingredients in the food than, than you can here. Here we put place a lot of um, we place a lot of the, the burden on let's say individual companies or you know labeling standards. Um, but I think there's there are other places where there's a greater use of technology to kind of empower the consumer to go out and grab that information and use what they what they most find most relevant. So I'd be interested to see if, if any of the rest of the guests think that that's coming in the U.S. where we can, you know, where we can use, like Sanjeev said, our smartphones, you know, is, is that something that's just, you know, individuals will move on or is that, you know, is that something that has to be required by law or does the consumer, you know, reward folks who, who take that step and make that, provide that extra layer of, of information? 
I can um, I can answer uh, that, Kelly, to a certain extent. I think I'm actually surprised that it hasn't um, taken off more than than it has already in the United States. Um, you know, I even think about myself and my, you know, as I'm kind of making my way to the grocery store, obviously I'm, this is all I think about, right, is food transparency and where it comes from. And more than scanning a QR code or, or scanning a product, I'll just pull up the manufacturer on the, on my phone on, the, on their website. Um, so certainly it's something that I think we're doing as, a, as consumers is, you know, figuring out where to find that information. But um, yeah, scanning just seems like it would be easy, but it just hasn't quite taken off the way that um, that I think we had anticipated that it would. Um, you know, certainly um, companies on their websites, there is a lot of natural and organic companies right now, and even, you know, conventional CPGs have, um, you know, FAQs or McDonald's has um, some amazing videos on with transparency stories. Um, but, you know, it's kind of understood at this point that there's probably going to be an ingredient map on your website um, but it just still seems challenging to find that information. You really have to dig and you have to kind of want it. So it, it has been surprising to me. I think um, we'll certainly see that uh, as more companies do that um, over time, that it'll grow as a, as a technology that people use. Yeah, we have a company in our portfolio called Shopwell. And, and Shopwell has about 350,000 different um, products in their database and it's growing you know, every day. And basically, their their um, their mission is to help guide the consumer to purchase uh, food that fits their their needs from a health perspective and a nutrient nutrition perspective. They've they've not been around sustainability. There's a bunch of platforms that that are trying to do it around sustainability uh, in addition to nutrition. Um, and I do think um, what what I find interesting around that is particularly in the in the perimeter and maybe increasingly in center store as well uh, companies are getting started and scaling by sort of saying know your farmer and so the idea is that when you buy you know organic chicken or all natural chicken and you, you you literally can scan a code and know exactly where that that the feed came from where, where the chicken was processed um, and then understand full transparency throughout that supply chain and I think that's being done in, in Asia. I, in my last, I flew back to company in the egg business, and I didn't really realize this. And China produces and consumes 40% of the world's eggs, and so we backed a um, a, a egg company, and each egg um, was branded egg company, and it was you know they followed um, it was all um, zero waste, it was uh, natural, it was organic, it was. It was done with EU animal rights standards. It wasn't cage-free because it, it didn't make sense to do it there because they had new food concerns. But, you know, all the things that, that the U.S. consumers would want. And one of the things you could do is each each egg had a little stamp, and you could type it in in your smartphone, and it told you what where it came from, what chicken it laid, what time, how it was transported, when, when this. And what we found interesting about it was People didn't buy it because of that. They bought it for food safety concerns. I mean, because there's the melamine issues in China around eggs. Um, and I think in, in at least I, I moved here to Chicago from Singapore, and the way a lot of markets, I think, in, in Asia operate, particularly China, is organic is not about sustainability or other things. It's about food safety um, in, in, in India as well. 
And so it's, I do think it's interesting to look at other markets beyond the U.S. and how they look at food because I think they, they think about it very differently because of other issues that they're worried about, uh, including food safety. So maybe consumers need to be incentivized by, you know, actually almost scared into looking at where their food is coming from, whereas maybe, you know, it's still a sort of nice to know bit of information for consumers over here um, and in other parts of the Western world. You know, I think in the U.S., particularly millennials, it's, it's changing. I, I always I'm on, I was on a panel at, uh, at, a, at an ag chemical upstream uh, scouting uh, technology kind of panel. And they were saying, you know, name one thing that has changed, um, you know, your world that in, in, it can't be one of your portfolio companies or investments. And I just said something provocative and I just sort of said Instagram. <laughs> um, and I say, I said it kind of tongue in cheek, but I do think um, social media has really had an influence on supply chains. Um, more people get their news increases from social media. It may not be the right information either sometimes, so you have to be careful. But there is a desire to, to know where your food came from, I think. And I don't. And I think that's just a secular trend in my view. I, I think it's millennials have embraced it for probably for, far more than others. Um, but it is something that I think uh, both the environmental footprint of it I, you, I see it. My, I have a five-year-old daughter, and she, she, she thinks about that in school, which is just astonishing to me. Um, but I think it, it, it is a secular shift in terms of where it came from is increasingly important. I don't know if Beth would have an opinion or Kelly would have an opinion about that, but I'd be curious about that. No, I agree with that. And I think we see social media as a rising influence in um, how you know NGOs will – um, you know, react and how they'll push their agendas and how consumers are finding information and sharing information. And we talk about food as the new music. So you think about music um, when we were kids or when I was a kid, you know, it was all about, oh, I got this, you know, this record imported from England and I'm the only one of my friends who has this and, you know, was, um, you know, able to get music anywhere at any time. There is no new music anymore. And so, what is the new? What's the new import imported record? It's the food. It's I found this great restaurant, and they do farm to table, and I've got this great, you know, single sourced lavender that I use for my tea or whatever it happens to be. And people are sharing that information on social media, and so I think that is playing a huge role in how people are being influenced um, and influencing others in food decisions. And I think it makes things really. It's an interesting challenge for the the supply side and for the grower, right? Because, <laughs> you know, I love being able to go online and do a custom order of something and have it arrive at my doorstep by drone, <laughs> you know, in, in 24 hours or less. <laughs> but food has never worked like that before, right? Like farmers are making decisions, um, you know, a year in advance about what they're going to plant, you know, a year ahead of harvest about what they're going to plant or more. And seed companies have to put in research, you know, decades or, um, uh, you know, years, let's say, maybe not decades, but, you know, years before in terms of what, where they think the market is going. So it's really hard. It has been really hard for the ag supply chain to adapt to a consumer that is increasingly operating on real time. Yeah, absolutely. That is a challenge, which hopefully technology can hope to help to solve. 
but also technology is one of the reasons why that challenge uh, is increasing. Um, not to change the subject too much, um, but we're about to run out of time. So wanting to bring this back to the beginning of our conversation when we were talking about the female consumer uh, and the female entrepreneur, I wonder if there's any particular advice that e any three of you would give to a female entrepreneur setting out in the ag food and ag tech space today. You know, I'd like to believe, and I don't think it's true yet, um, that it would not matter for the entrepreneur whether what gender they were. Um, around, you know, it's, it's about people, it's about the idea, it's about execution, um, and, and there's always risks, you know, you know, product risk, R&D risk, um, customer acquisition risk, all the usual things that we all struggle with on a daily basis. So I, I, I would not want to pretend to offer advice to particularly female entrepreneurs and, and issues with them, but, but I think, you know, my, I'll just, it's more generic around advice that I would give to any entrepreneur. I think one thing that in food and ag, and particularly in the ag side, is around your assumptions around adoption. Um, I think what Kelly's done a great job of is really understanding that adoption is going to take longer and building a business that is able to, to weather and, 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 and continue to grow in that assumption. I think a lot of companies think, particularly in the ag space, there's non-linearity. And, you know, you go from, you know, it, like in consumer internet where things go viral, you know, we, you know, people, this is a physical commodity. This is not software. And so it's not nonlinearity. It's happened in my experience twice, Haber Bosch and GMO. Um, and I don't know, you know, if, if, and I think so entrepreneurs and particularly the ag supply chain side need to, you know, be in it for a, a slog, if you will. Beth, do you have one or two pieces of advice for female entrepreneurs in the food space? Yeah, I do. I just go be confident. You know, confidence is something that female entrepreneurs and females in big companies, you know, need and need to continue to, to work on. I think be confident in, in the work that you're doing and the decisions that you're making and know that, you know, you there's a very high percentage a, a chance that you're gonna there's gonna be failures in your future and that's okay fail fast and um and get it over with and embrace it for the learning experience um you know i always tell my team here sustainable agriculture is like hiking the continental divide once you gain that altitude even though the terrain is incredibly rocky don't give it up excellent and Kelly, any words of wisdom from your experience starting Macaris? Yeah, so I'll flip it on its head and I will give advice to the sort of male funders, potential customers out there, conference organizers, which is <laughs> the women are out there, <laughs> have them at the table and, and make them decision makers. And we all have our own internal biases and the first step towards healing is admitting those exist and uh, I think I think that will help close the loop on the, the, the disparity in representation amongst you know various groups. Fantastic way to end thank you so much thank you to all three of you it's been great having you on and um, look forward to speaking again soon. Wonderful thanks so much for having us. Yeah, thank, thank you. you and thanks to uh, Beth and Kelly for participating as well. You've been listening to AgFunder. 
Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts to hear new episodes coming out every two weeks. And if you liked it, please leave a rating and a review as this helps the show get found so we can keep having conversations that change the way the world sees agriculture. For more news on food, agriculture, startups and investors, go to agfundernews.com and you can also follow us on Twitter at agfunder. I'm Louisa Boa-Taylor. Thank you so much for listening.